And so I started with an empty Go file and, you know, funk main and, and just started cranking away. This took like four or five months of just pacing around the room and talking through problems and like spike coding a bunch of stuff and just seeing what would work. It was a really busy time, but came up with, I think, a really awesome design, fairly novel architecture. And we were able to close over 400 issues and feature requests with just the new design alone. Machines are so fast and stores are so big that they give us plenty of latitude to screw things up. The shell, or which is the name we give to the command interpreter. So the operator got a pair of tweezers and very carefully fished the moth out of the relay. Because you all read the mythical man month. And the best motivator in the world for programming is, is scratching your niche. Developers, 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 developers. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sourcecraft Podcast. I'm your host, Byung Liu, and today I'm chatting with Matt Holt, prolific Go open source contributor and creator of the very popular Caddy web server. Matt shares his initial motivations for creating Caddy, how the project grew and evolved over time, the journey from Caddy 1 to Caddy 2, and the challenges of maintaining a popular open source project. He also talks about his latest project, a developer-friendly TCP multiplexer called Project Concept. Stay tuned. I'm here with Matt Holt, creator of the popular Caddy HTTP server and contributor to many, many open source libraries in Go. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Bian. Glad to be here. Well, we have a lot to cover today, but um, you know, as always, before we get into uh, the kind of meat of your uh, open source contributions, uh, I wanted to start off by asking you, you know, how you got into programming originally. What was that kind of initial spark for you? I think it had something to do with growing up in the in Iowa, um, kind of in the countryside with no one else around to you know play with or or anything. So I had to kind of do my own fun things, and part of that was tinkering on the computer, I guess, when I wasn't out working on the stable. Um, so I I think I credit it to learning. Oh, what did I learn? Visual Basic six and well, and QBasic before that, tinkering around in MS-DOS 6. Um, so yeah, those were fun days, um, learning how to use like Windows 3.1 and and, um, and see if I could cheat some of the games. And I don't know, those were good times. That's what got me into it. You, you got started early then with Windows uh, 3.1. <laughs> yeah, we had no internet, so I had to learn it all from books. That's uh, That's amazing. You know, I actually didn't, uh, know that about you that you grew up in Iowa. I actually grew up in Iowa too, although I think I had a far less productive childhood than you <laughs> as far as computers <laughs> go. That's okay. You don't need a productive childhood. You need a fun one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, in kind of like preparing for this conversation, I was trying to think back to like how I first met you. Like, I, we met through the, the Go open source community, and I think it might have been one of the early GopherCons. Do you remember how, how we first met? <laughs> Oh man, good question. I, I don't. Um, GopherCon sounds right. <laughs> I think I went to the 2014 or uh, 2015 GopherCons, so like the first couple of them. Um, yeah. So it very well could have been there. I think I met you and Quinn. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, time flies. <laughs> I know. So much has changed. Yeah. So you know, given that you were at the early uh, GopherCons, my sense is that you were a fairly early adopter of, of Go. Um, tried it out. Uh, in the 
fairly early days before too many people had um, adopted it. Uh, what kind of got you into the Go programming language in the first place? The, um, the company I was working at was looking into using Go. This was about like right after 1.0 was tagged. Um, hmm. So this is back in like 20, I don't know, 11-ish. And um, we were a C-sharp shop. I was doing front-end stuff at the time. But um, hmm. we uh, we were looking into Go for our new back-end stack. And um, so I wrote one of the first services um, in Go. It was an address autocomplete API, which I think was running in production hmm. until like last year. <laughs> it was like this awful Go code, <laughs> my first Go project. Um, but it, it was a really, it was a breath of fresh air. I was coming from like PHP. I had done all back-end in PHP before that. And man, Go is awesome. And uh, <laughs> I've been champing it ever since and just grateful that Google hasn't abandoned it like every other one of their products. So <laughs> hopefully that that trend holds. Yeah, I, I remember coming to go from uh, mostly Java and I had very much the same reaction as you did. It was, it was definitely a bre breath of fresh air. Yeah, it's nice to be able to like have short lines of codes and uh, you know, not need your <laughs> ultra wide monitor to read the class names. And I know that's like, a trope, kind of a joke, but it's so true. Yeah, yeah. Actually, totally. in it's fact, funny because in, in college, I wrote uh, in my upper class, uh, upper division classes, I would write my projects all in Go when, you know, when you get to the point where you can choose your own language and everything. And, um, mm -hmm. and so I wrote all my stuff in Go and my programs performed using the same algorithms, basically, like as my classmates, all my programs performed faster and used less memory. Like all my, <laughs> all my friends who were writing in Python were have, had like, they were really slow. All the friends who wrote code in Java, they're like VMs would crash because like high memory usage <laughs> and, and stuff. Um, but I guess again, like comparable code base, like comparable algorithms, just Go was just so much better. It like gave me a competitive advantage in school. You know, from talking to my brother who just graduated college, I don't think Go has actually been that widely adopted uh, in uh, the university environment yet. So if anyone is listening to this and they're currently in college, that's a pro tip for you. Write your assignments in Go and yeah. they'll automatically be faster and better than most of your peers. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. Without the pain of C. Yeah, totally. So the Caddy HTTP server, um, that's probably the project uh, that you're most well known for. I think it's it's probably the, the most popular project that uh, you've created. Um, for those who you know are not familiar with it, uh, how, would, how would you describe what it is and what it does? Um, yeah, I would say just like you did, it's an HTTP server. So it's, uh, I guess you could compare it to Nginx or Apache or um, HA proxy and, and some other popular web servers and proxies. It, it is both a content origin, so like can serve up static mm -hmm. files and, and render you know, documents and things like that. Um, but mm -hmm. it, it's also a proxy, a very powerful and flexible um, HTTP reverse proxy. And what is your kind of uh, view of the landscape of HTTP servers and, and reverse proxies? You mentioned Apache and Nginx and HAProxy. Um, you know, yeah. what's kind of your analysis of that space and where does Caddy fit in along with those others? Yeah, so like when we released Caddy back, well, when it was a one-man project back when I first started it in 2015, when we released it then, when I released it then, it was, there were, the, the ones I named were the major players. And there's like IIS, like um, for Windows, mm -hmm. and, you know, but there was like 
four, five mainstream servers, a couple others like Lighty and stuff. But um, so it's not a huge, it's a huge market. Like everyone needs a web server. And even, <laughs> even these serverless architectures that came about later still use web yeah. servers. Fun fact. Um, so everyone needs a web server, but there were only a few. And so I needed one that satisfied my requirements. And so I made one. And it was different from all the rest. And hopefully if you if you use it, you kind of get a, a whiff of that and you, you can get a sense of how it's how it's different and, and hopefully better than what you're used to. My sense is, you know, I've I've used uh, Nginx before and a little bit of uh, Apache, but you know, when I compare the experience of uh, working with Caddy to those, it seems to me that um, kind of the developer experience was uh, like at the top of your mind when you were building it, because uh, it, it it seems like fairly ergonomic, um, kind of uh, a, l- a little bit more intuitive to to me as like a developer who you know traditionally has not spent you know that much time as like a sysadmin or like operations focused person. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that was kind of the focus, right? Because I was, I was setting up a bunch of random sites, especially for school and, and work projects, just a bunch of little sites, and uh, manually configuring them. And so I needed mm-hmm. a server that I could they could quickly just spin up a, a site with some semi advanced functionality like proxying and or markdown rendering was a big one for me at the time, um, mm-hmm. and templates like doing includes in my HTML files and stuff, little like things like that that were like stupid but important for me at the time. And so it was just yeah. coming up with a way to configure it and and just you know a little command to run it real quick. Um, I don't think I had the future or like growth in mind when I designed it. And that really, if you followed the Caddy One life cycle, you can definitely feel like you could tell it got strained up a bit. So things like server-side includes, but better, a little more flexible, like like including files in in into HTML files, but also like rendering like the current time or or doing little transformations on on subtext. So like stupid little features like that, but they were kind of hard to come by in other web servers. And so, um, and plus something that was easy to configure and just kind of made sense. Um, so the caddy file came about through that. And um, so anyway, I just built this server that that satisfied my requirements and was just a lot easier to use um, at the time compared to any other servers that were out there. Nice. And uh, so you were building it for yourself uh, at first. Uh, at what point did you say, like, hey, this thing that I built for myself might be useful to others? And you know, when did others actually start using it? Uh, yeah. So I put, I developed it myself, and then had a classmate um, who who I uh, who I worked with. Um, he kind of also gave me a little bit of a nudge um, back mm-hmm. the, in the day, and so. And then there were a couple other classmates actually that did contribute to it early on, um, like the fast CGI middleware to work with PHP sites. Um, and mm-hmm. so I was really grateful for their help. And then I realized when they started contributing to it and using it, maybe I should open source this thing. So I put it on GitHub and then I put it on Hacker News, which <laughs> was a mistake. Maybe not. I don't know. It, it was actually well received on Hacker News, but, um, but when it got to the front page there and Got a lot of feedback that was really helpful and embarrassing at the same time. Yeah, the Hacker News crowd is is uh, can be very blunt and. Uh, oh boy. 
uh, yeah, unforgiving <laughs> at times. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, at the same time, you know, now looking back, it's like, yeah, the project was clearly, uh, you know, filled a gap that others, uh, you know, felt that there was something that, that was needed there. Yeah, I think so. And back in the day, it was HTTP2 and easy config. Um, you know, HTTP2 was cutting yeah. edge and yeah, um, auto HTTPS wasn't a thing yet, quite, not quite yet. Um, in fact, yeah. you couldn't even configure the TLS settings <laughs> uh, at all um, back, yeah, in the initial release. What were kind of the the big features that people found uh, really attractive in in those days? I, I think this was like circa 2013, or is, is that uh, right? No, it was it was 2015. Yeah. Oh, 2015. So okay. HTTP2 had uh, just barely been standardized, or was close to being standardized. Um, mm-hmm. That was kind of the main selling point. It was like, hey, it was this cross-platform server. So it's a server that worked the same in Windows, Mac, Linux, FreeBSD, OpenBSD, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. It was an HTTP2 web server. So um, if you served, well, because HTTP2 is over TLS only, typically, um, if you enabled TLS at the time, you had to enable TLS. Uh, it would also serve mm-hmm. HTTP2 just like that. It was really cool. Um, yeah. And then I think people liked the easy configuration of the caddy file. Um, people liked it. They also hated it. I also was in <laughs> both of those camps. I kind of liked it, but I hated it. Especially I hated it more as time goes on and I hate it to this day, but it remained <laughs> to this day. And we could talk about that later. Uh, yeah. And, and for those uh, listeners who are less familiar with caddy, um, it would behoove us to mention that there's caddy one and caddy two. So we're talking about caddy one right now. And we'll, we'll get to caddy two a little bit later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm curious, you know, what, what did you and others, uh, start to hate about, uh, caddy one over time? Uh, I definitely felt the pull of, uh, in many directions for features and capabilities. Um, mm-hmm. and to a certain point it was cool. Like we were able to handle it. It came up with this like modular, like plugin architecture. Um, so you could just add an import and add new functionality to caddy that way. Um, and yeah. to this day, we still use that basic idea. Um, these, these, compile time plugins. Um, so we can add more features infinitely and not bloat the code base. So that's really nice. Um, yeah. But the the way that Caddy loaded its configuration and received its configuration and interacted with its environment. So like the use of signals and the lack of an API, like a REST API was very limiting. Mm-hmm. Um, so feature requests started to pile up and did my best to keep the number of open issues under 100, but uh, could only do that for so long. And, um, you know, and I had to close or defer a lot of issues and be like, well, I mean, then Caddy isn't the right tool for the job, even though deep down I'm like, that's yeah. stupid. It should work. And, and at this point, were you still uh, like the, the sole main contributor uh, to the project or, or had others joined? Yeah, no, I mean, well, Contributor, Caddy 1 had over 250, almost 300 contributors, people who made pull requests, maybe a line or two, you know, change, but plenty of contributors, uh, the problem is getting them to stick. And so as far as maintainers go, we did have, we did have a few uh, in our, mm-hmm. in our community who stuck around and, and developed features in a pretty dedicated sense, but it's been really hard to find maintainers who will like, to scale up the project in that sense of the maintainership of it and to find people who will yeah. take some responsibility and also enjoy just like 
vetting the code and, and the, um, I guess putting in, like it's a big ask to put in time on a project that's not yours, even if it's one that you use. Yeah. I, I mean, people will contribute what they want or need and then they'll leave and, and maybe continue using yeah. it, but they won't contribute it again. Um, yeah, it's been tough to find maintainers though. Yeah, and, and I want to dive into the kind of the pain points of uh, maintaining uh, a large, you know, wildly popular open source project at scale sustainably. But before we get into that, you know, I think a lot of people out there would be, uh, they would be super glad to have, you know, that sort of problem, you know, where there's like so many bug requests and, and feature requests because uh, so many people are using it. So um, kind of to that end, um, do you remember what kind of the big, you know, inflection points were, um, you know, was there a point which like, uh, that, you know, things hit kind of like a hockey stick trajectory in terms of like more and more people, uh, were getting onto caddy. Like, what, what do you think were the factors in it's kind of like explosive early growth? Uh, that's a good question. So again, very initially it was the HB2. So the cutting edge technology and the configuration, the ease of configuration, um, and it kind of came to be known as like a local developer tool um, or even mm -hmm. a toy web server, something you would tinker with, but never something you would deploy into production, which is unfortunate mm -hmm. because that was always the point of it. Um, yeah. Why did people perceive it as, as a non-production? You know, I don't know. I Part of it, honestly, I think is psychological. Like I blame the name. I actually don't like the name Caddy, but it, it, mm -hmm. it was the most descriptive name I could think of that was because it, it kind of takes care of all these little details for you. So you don't have to worry about it as you yeah. play your game, so to speak, or as you, you know, it's, it just takes care of all that. And so, but the name is not as cool as like Nginx and Apache. <laughs> sure. And it sounds dumb. So, but th that honestly might be one reason. Another reason, and I don't buy, I hear this a lot. Oh, Caddy is so new. Well, uh, Core DNS is even newer and is a Caddy plugin actually, and now is a Caddy fork. Yeah. Um, but that powers Kubernetes, and Kubernetes is about the same age as Caddy. Uh, and there's yeah. I could name a bunch of other, uh, you know, Kong out there. I think launched around the same time. Like I don't buy the whole it's too new thing. Um, I don't know. I think yeah. people have just kind of made up their mind when they like you make a decision. It's probably no different than like meeting a person. You just you make a judgment whether that's a good thing sure. or a bad thing, but um, anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's really too bad because it's it's a really good production web server. I mean, we yeah. use it in production and a lot of our customers do as well, so. Cool, yeah, um, and then back to your first question here. It, it also, I think another thing that did help though was the automatic HTTPS. I think that kind of wowed mm -hmm. a lot of people. It still wows me today, actually, that that works. Um, yeah, the fact that you can turn on a web server with nothing more than a domain name to serve, and boom, it's over HTTPS in just a couple seconds. It has a certificate. It's managing it. It yeah. will keep it renewed. It staples the OCSP response for you. Like it does HTTPS right, and about as good as you can possibly do it uh, out of the box. Yeah. And no other server does that still to this day by default. Like there are plenty yeah. of services and servers that will like do it automatically that will automate HTTPS, but you have to like check a box or turn it on with some mm -hmm. config parameter. So anyway. 
Yeah, that's that's pretty interesting because you know when I think about the pain points I encounter when standing up a web server, like setting up TLS and HTTPS is often extremely annoying. And so you know why do you, why do you think it is that other web servers have just not prioritized that? I you know are we in kind of like a niche category here, or or are they just not as like you know focused on the developer experience, or or you know what is it? <laughs> I don't know. It's hard, but maybe I mean. Maybe they're afraid of new major versions, but HAProxy just released mm. a version 2.0, and it's still yeah. not auto. It's still not HTTPS by default. But I, I don't know, honestly. Like I, HTTPS just seems like the right default these days. Yeah. Do you do you have numbers around like how many people have downloaded and like are using Caddy to today? Um, I did. Well, no, yes. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> I mean, I have a rough idea of how many people have downloaded it from our website and how many people have cloned it from GitHub. Uh, and I have a rough idea of how many people or how many Docker polls there are. So that's the other thing mm -hmm. is tracking people versus uh, deployments and downloads. Like it's all different and it's very nuanced. Um, but Caddy has well over probably 40 or 50 million Docker polls. If you consider all the different Docker images, we now have a, an official one that's a few months old. Thanks to community mm -hmm. contributions here, we've been able to make an official Docker image. Um, and then downloads from our website, a million and like a half over the last few years. Um, Get clones, wow. uh, hundreds of thousands. But again, that I don't know what that means as far as actual deployment scale that we're seeing. But yeah, yeah, I tried finding out how widely Caddy is deployed with telemetry which is also a good research tool because we were able to like learn about the technical landscape of the internet um, and see what kind of clients were out there on more than just proprietary networks, like, you know, Cloudflare oh, cool. networks. Yeah. Yeah. But um, <laughs> so we could see what kind of like TLS client hellos were being advertised and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, but it was expensive to upkeep that and um, people, treated it toxically, unfortunately. And so I shut it yeah. down, but. Yeah, telemetry is one of those uh, really tricky issues, uh, you know, cause there are a lot of people very passionate about um, data privacy and that sort of thing. And, you know, I think, um, you know, legitimately so in, in a lot of cases, but at the same time, I think a side of the conversation that often gets lost is, hey, the people who made this application want to, you know, gather data so they can make it better for users and, and learn from it. And uh, yeah. I. I I feel like a lot of applications struggle with, with that sort of balance. And yet people still use software like Linux and Firefox and Chrome and Windows and all of which emit telemetry. So whatever. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the journey from Caddy 1 to Caddy 2. Um, so Caddy 1 was released uh, in, I believe it was April 2015. Uh, and then Caddy 2 was just released earlier this year in May, right? May the 4th. Yep, may the fourth may the fourth be with you. Um, <laughs> it's with us all. And but, so my understanding was Caddy two was was pretty much a, a rewrite from uh, scratch. Although you know maybe there were a couple of components that you you took over uh, from Caddy one. But uh, can can you talk about that decision to you know make it kind of a major version upgrade and to you know revamp uh, the code base? Yeah. Um, well, like I had talked about it before, all these feature requests and uh, an issue started piling up, and so it it was time to rewrite it. And so I started with an empty go file and, you know, funk main and 
hmm. and just started cranking away. Um, first thing I had to figure out was, well, I had to, I was, I became very familiar with all the open issues um, and eventually came up with an architecture. This took like four or five months of just pacing around the room and talking through problems and like spike coding a bunch of stuff and just seeing what would work, doing a lot of research mm -hmm. as to what kind of, like how would configuration be loaded? What would configuration look like? What format is it in? Um, how can how can we achieve certain of these goals, you know, that we have in these open issues? There's a mm -hmm. lot of work. Um, and I had just finished, I was just finishing grad school. It was right at the very end of my thesis. Um, so it was a really busy time, but came up with, I think, a really awesome design, fairly novel architecture. Um, and we were able to close over 400 issues and feature requests with just wow. the new design alone. Uh, and I think we have the capability of closing all the remaining ones if people want to help put in some time and, and just finish them up. That's awesome. What, what were kind of the key design and architectural decisions and insights that enabled all this? Yeah, so the first one uh, was how, how to load configuration and how to manage that. Um, in V1, a major problem was that the caddy file is just human readable and writable. So it, mm -hmm. it was a bit restrictive if, it, if you wanted to automate your deployments, which is more and more popular these days. You know, everything mm -hmm. should have an API so you can like programmatically interact with it. Um, and so I designed it around a, a config API or an admin API. Um, and then the other question was like, how do you like? How do, what what format? I have so many. There's actually a YouTube talk on this, <laughs> which we could link to in the description, nice. maybe. But yeah. anyway, one of the the main questions I had to answer was how do you change certain config parameters in real time, especially if you don't want to change the whole server. Um, and if you do want to change the whole server, how do you do that efficiently? And how do you like you have the server with a thousand concurrent clients? actively using it, how do you change something? You can't just pull out the rug from all of them, can you? Mm -hmm. Well, turns out you can. Um, oh. <laughs> and and you can actually make it so that uh, it feels like you're just changing one config parameter. You, like, let's suppose that you have an API endpoint and you change just one config parameter uh, using this endpoint. Um, you can make it work like that, but still actually, if you swap out the whole config, with just that one changed parameter, it's actually really efficient because it makes things really easy on the garbage collector to just clean up the one config value that it had provisioned. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and to, so you actually can pull the rug out from under all your, your concurrent go routines and put down a new one uh, without anything noticing. Uh, and wow. it requires only a single lock, which is really nice. Um, and so you can do you can do dozens of config reloads per second or whatever your hardware is capable of, um, no problem. And uh, we also this way we don't need a lock around every single config parameter. You can imagine the concurrency nightmares that come go along with that, um, which yeah. also introduces like two-way data binding problems. So anyway, there were a lot of these like config handling questions that had to answer. Um, and I think we have a really good, simple solution for that that works really well. Um, we even have graceful reloads working in Windows. 
which is not something other web servers really offer because the way we handle network sockets and do the um, do the graceful, like we gracefully transfer control of the socket from one server to the next. Um, hmm. We do that in a way that works cross-platform, which is hmm. really kind of unique. So, so there was that issue. Um, the the new design also had to answer what the config looks like, and I'll cut to the chase and spare you the details as to why. But we settled with JSON, whether you like it or not. The config is JSON, <laughs> and uh, it's actually a very elegant solution um, if you look into what you can do with it. Um, and then writing JSON is obviously a pain. So the answer to that is to have config adapters is what I call them, where hmm. um, these, these little pieces of code, they're caddy plugins basically that can change your config from any format you prefer into JSON. Because one of the reasons we had to pick JSON was because everything, almost anything, can evaluate down to a JSON document because it is. <laughs> and there's a bunch of like language theory behind why that is and you know declarative versus imperative syntax and all this stuff but um, but yeah you can convert your caddy file to JSON so anytime you use a caddy file in caddy 2 it just converts it to the JSON under the hood for you you can convert your nginx config to caddy JSON um, and even run caddy directly with your nginx config like that uh, Toml yeah. and YAML obviously convert to JSON if you prefer those. Um, the, and the thing is that with JSON config, we're able to expose just about every single config parameter of your web server in like a one-to-one -one format. So every field wow. in a memory, like uh, in a struct that's in memory, you can configure via JSON. Um, so you have unprecedented amounts of control of your web server. So that's awesome. Yeah, anyway, that's a really long answer, but that's also, I think, where Caddy 2 really shines. So I hope the, the power users will really appreciate that. Cool. Uh, another feature of, of Caddy 2 is kind of the extensibility uh, part of it. And uh, I understand that extensibility is achieved through these things called Caddy apps. Uh, can you explain what Caddy apps are and, and what sort of things you can do with them? Yeah, um, so Caddy app is, so Caddy is made of modules. Um, a module is a is a piece of code or a plugin basically that that adds something to Caddy's config structure. So if you if you look at a the top level of a Caddy config of its JSON structure, it has like four mm -hmm. fields. There's like logging and admin, um, and then there's storage, and then there's one called apps. Um, mm -hmm. And the only thing Caddy knows how to do at its core is this is a crucial thing to understand about the Caddy architecture is that it only knows how to load a config. It knows how to work with like those four fields. And that's about it. Um, everything else is handled by modules. So um, for example, storage at that top level, you would configure um, various storage modules. It has a, a default storage module, of course, the file system. Um, mm -hmm. But all it does is it says, oh, I'm supposed to use the file system storage. And then it loads that. And then the file system module or the storage module, whatever it is, will just run with that and do what it needs to do. And then when it gets to apps, it's just, hey, it's an app. And all it knows how to do is call start on the app. And it passes in a context. And that's hmm. literally all Caddy does. And then when it, the config changes, it calls stop on the apps. Actually, I don't even think it does that. I think it just cancels the context, which 
implicitly calls stop on all the apps and calls start on all the new apps. So, um, so that's really all Caddy does is it starts and stops apps. So apps are just um, pieces of Go code that implement an interface called caddy.app, which has two methods, mm. start and stop. And uh, so the HTTP server is a Caddy app, which is a module that extends you know, its config structure that um, when you start it, it loads all the servers that you have configured there and it knows how to run them. And then when stop is called, it knows how to shut them down gracefully. That's uh, that's really cool. Yeah, so apps can do um, anything, anything that a long running program will do. So um, current apps that ship with Caddy standard are the HTTP service, the HTTP app, a TLS app, which manages certificates. So this means, by the way, that you can actually run Caddy to and manage certificates, meaning obtain them and keep them renewed over the lifetime of the process without needing mm -hmm. to run an HTTP server at all. You just say TLS and then there's like a couple other properties, but you just specify the names, the domain names that you need certificates for, and it will just keep them renewed on in your storage, which is a file system by default, but it can also be a database or literally anything. So, I mean, it's super yeah. flexible here. Like we're talking unprecedented and unlimited amounts of extensibility basically. Um, as long as it's written in Go, so. <laughs> and and why why is uh, there that requirement of it being uh, written in in Go? Yeah, because these are compile time dependencies. So Caddy always is a static binary. Well, it, yeah, it's a static binary. So you can ship around this executable um, that cross compiles to basically any platform, and mm -hmm. it will just work. You have no external dependencies, not even libc. Now, granted, we don't really have control over third-party apps and modules as to what they do. Like, they might use Zgo, and that's up to them. Uh, we yeah. discourage that typically, and and I don't think we'll officially distribute any that that have external dependencies like that. But um, mm -hmm. but yeah, so the idea is that if you want to extend Caddy, you do it at compile time, and then you can ship around these static binaries. You don't have to worry about like which Python version you have installed or which you know C libraries you've got and all that stuff on a system. You don't need, frankly, you don't need Docker to run Caddy. Like people do because yeah. that they're they're already ingrained in that ecosystem, but it's just yeah. a static binary. Just run it. Yeah, that's one of the magical things about Go is that you can cross compile it to basically any uh, computing platform and it's just that single executable. You drop it in and it just magically works. Yeah, it's so nice. <laughs> So, so Go has um, kind of a, a plugin package in its standard library, but uh, you kind of so you you went the the route of actually statically compiling um, Caddy apps uh, into the code as, as opposed to using the kind of yeah plugin mechanism in, in the Go language. Can you talk about uh, you know wh why you went that route? Sure. Yeah. The um, the Go plugin package is is interesting, but it's an experiment, and it's not it's not. Great. I mean, it's not Go's fault. It's just that's just how it is. Um, yeah. It's a hard problem to do dynamically linked runtime dependencies, and also makes things difficult and tricky. And frankly, there's not a huge win, in my opinion. I know that people like that way of doing things, and like I respect that, but it's just a lot more reliable and a lot less stressful to. Um, just get a static binary that has everything you need and then just ship that. Now, 
this is difficult when you're talking about like certain distribution platforms and packaging systems that, for example, packaging a Go program for like Ubuntu, like an official mm -hmm. Ubuntu or Debian package is a nightmare. I don't even know if it's possible because of you have to package, really? you have to package every dependency all the way down to the metal, basically. Um, oh. And that's really hard um, in practice. So anyways, um, anyway, Go plugins are fine, but they're not like something that we wanted to rely on. So the caddy way of doing it is you just add an import to your main function and Literally, as long as it's just compiled in, it will get the plugin will register itself on init when the program is starting up, and then Caddy yeah. can use it. Uh, and we have tools to help manage that um, pretty easily. So that makes sense. So going back to Caddy apps and what you can do with them, um, I want to dive into like some of the other things that uh, you know you and uh, perhaps members of the community have built through Caddy apps. Um, and perhaps I'll start with kind of a, a personal anecdote, which is. Uh, you know, source graph, we support uh, SSO because it's often uh, a requirement for, uh, for the companies that we sell into, you know, large enterprises, things like that. And I was actually the one who wrote a lot of our uh, original SSO code. Um, I remember at the time uh, looking into like Nginx plugins for SSO, um, but getting kind of lost in the documentation. And, you know, there's always that worry in the back of your mind where like, you know, maybe it works for the first you know, one or two, you know, cases, but eventually you're going to hit some edge case where you know, the plugin doesn't support what you need it to do. And so then you're left kind of, you know, hitting a brick wall. And so that's why we ended up just building SSO into the, the source graph uh, application itself. But, you know, if, if I were writing that today, um, knowing what I know about, you know, Caddy and, and uh, Caddy apps and, and the plugin architecture, it seems like a, a much better path would have been to like write SSO support um, as a caddy app. And then I, because it's just go code, I could just make, make it talk to whatever, you know, backend or database uh, I needed it to connect to for, you know, for mm -hmm. user validation and, and things like that. Is that yeah, that's uh, kind a, of the idea? Exactly. A great use case. Yeah. So um, there's a couple ways you could do it, right? Like it, SSO is a great, it's, it's a hard problem, but um it could be a caddy app if it's if it's standalone, like if it can run on its own, you just call start and then you know it does its thing. Or if you need it to be like an HTTP handler, it could be an HTTP handler module and that can you can plug that in instead. Um, mm -hmm. There, I know that um, a developer named um, Paul, he's been working on some authentication modules for caddy too, and made some. He's done some really cool stuff. It's they're very powerful. Um, they're still kind of in the early days, but he wants people to help test them. Um, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but so Caddy, yeah, it would be a great use case for things like authentication, anything that again is long running. Another benefit too of writing a Caddy module instead of a separate piece of code that you have to ship and run and manage. Well, so that's a nice thing, right? Is you can, if all your if your whole stack is written in Go and they're all caddy modules, then that means you ship one binary around and you have all your services in that one central yeah. configuration that you manage. And they all automatically benefit from this real-time online config API because the config API just manipulates the JSON struct in real time while the server is running. Um, so, and since it's all one JSON structure, you can just 
-hmm. manipulate it. And we also can automatically document it. So if you go to our Caddy website and you look at the documentation and you look at the JSON config uh, structure, there's all this automatically generated JSON documentation, which normally is not that difficult to do, except that because of its extensible nature, like yeah. it's, you know, like we have the top level and then we have a few keys or properties and then we have the apps key. And then what's, what's within that? Well, it's impossible to know until we have like modules, but, but this system, this documentation system, you can just hover over it and see what modules are available there. You click on the one you want to use. And, um, and so there, it's all self-documenting automatically. That's awesome. I, I think documentation is such an important part of, uh, you know, developer experience and ergonomics. And I think Caddy does a fantastic job of that. Like the docs are, you know, so user-friendly and, and easy to explore. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Can we, can we feature that on the, on the podcast page? Cause I don't hear that Absolutely. too often, but I, I mean, our docs <laughs> could improve, but like, they're pretty good and we get a lot of complaints, but they're not actually that bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, uh, at, however much effort you invest into your docs, there's always going to be a long tail of people that will say like, well, you know, you know, I had a hard time using them. And, and yeah, uh, I mean, we can work on so, that, but, but they're not there <laughs> anyway, at, at least from this user's perspective, I've, I've okay. had a, you know, overall very positive experience with the docs. Um, awesome. And so I actually wanted to ask you, you know, like what is, what, what is the key to having uh, good docs? Uh, are there a couple things that you found that really work for you and uh, your community? The uh, documentation is hard. Uh, I think it's important to scope your documentation and keep it frankly pretty narrow. Like it's not your job, for example, we're, we're a web server. Um, technically mm -hmm. we're an application platform, but most people use it as a web server. Um, mm -hmm. Our job is not to explain how the internet works. It's not our job to explain how to configure. <laughs> frankly, like I know it's funny when you say it like this, and I, I don't, I don't mean to come off. I, I know exactly what you're talking about, though. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean to come off condescending, but like, frankly, it is not the documentation's job to explain how to open like that. That ports eighty and four four three need to be used for HTTP and HTTPS, typically. Yeah. Um, you know, or how to like configure your firewalls and, and other network things like, or how to run yeah. a process on Linux and, you know, after a reboot, like that's, I mean, we, we have official like packages and, and we have a tutorial, but it, it really, our docs need to be focused on how to use the software. And yeah. so we get a lot of complaints that like our docs don't tell you enough, but the reason is because we, we kind of expect you to frankly to know how, how to use your computer and how the internet works. And yeah. when you're ready to come learn how to use a web server, like Caddy is not a child's toy. It is, it's an advanced tool. I think that was our biggest mistake in V1 was touting it as like, it's easy to use. That was a mistake because <laughs> web servers, no matter how easy you make them to use, like, and Caddy is not hard to use, but there's a lot going on and you just need to understand it. And so, read the documentation. We have tutorials that like you users should go through. I want everyone, no matter how experienced or expert you are to go through the getting started guide, just go through getting yeah. started, go through either the API tutorial or the caddy file tutorial, whatever you want. Um, go through at least those two things. And then, and then the rest of it is reference documentation. Mostly you can, 
just once you know what you are looking for, just find it in the reference documentation and then kind of figure it out. Like, and yeah, we'll improve it where there's mistakes or gaps, but, but yeah, like focus the docs, you know, you need to separate tutorials from reference and then also kind of expect something of your users. It's okay to do that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I've certainly, you know, had the experience of even with something like Sourcecraft, which you know, isn't even an HTTP server, but like, you know, sometimes I'll get random emails from people saying like, hey, you know, could you help me answer this like homework question? Oh. <laughs> like, <laughs> this has nothing to do with Sourcecraft, but, uh, yeah. you know, I almost like, I feel like, you know, for, for a lot of people, maybe it comes from a good place. Cause you know, when I, when I think back to when I was, you know, very new to development, it, you can very easy, easily get overwhelmed by just like the sheer quantity of stuff that, uh, you know, you may or may not have to comprehend about, you know, how the internet works, how computer works. Um, but yeah. I guess my, my advice to, you know, anyone who's submitting like a question or, um, you, you know, that sort of thing to like a, a, a open source project is just you know, be upfront with your level of knowledge. Like if you're kind of like grasping astrology, just like, you know, say that. And like, oftentimes people are very happy to like point you in, in like the right direction, but just like yeah. err on the side of saying like, you know, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm a noob here. I'm trying to, you know, get this up and running. I understand this may not be the best form, uh, you know, would love any, you know, pointers that people might be able to give. I think that that sort of ask will, will have a much higher likelihood of, of getting, a useful response. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And and it's hard because like we developers, maintainers have limited time um, and I, I want to help people. I I would love to tutor people and help people on like their homework project problems, but I just <laughs> I have limited time to do that. Um, and yeah, like also I would, I would suggest don't, don't go in, you know, guns a blazing, blaming the the software. Like, yes, I, I know that even you may know what you're doing and how to use your computer, but but it might not actually be the software's fault. And and honestly, most of, I would say more than fifty percent, close to three quarters. I don't know. I'm spitballing here, but a mm-hmm. lot of the forum threads and issues that are opened with the Caddy project, at least, are not actually issues with caddy they're usually issues with like a cloudflare configuration or like a network misconfiguration or a docker yeah. mess up docker so many times docker or dns <laughs> docker and dns are like equally problematic and then you know and it actually the problem has nothing to do with caddy like most of the time caddy is caddy works you know the software yeah. works like it's just putting all the pieces together is hard and i get that but just don't come in blaming the software like just be open to possibilities and help us understand your entire setup. And yes, it's a lot of information to write down and it takes time to boil it down to its simplest form and make it, make the problem reproducible so we can, you know, experience the same thing. And, and these are all skills that, that we want the community to learn, but they're very helpful and very important. Um, and then, but, but yeah, like when we do get good reports, we can, we can fix the bugs. So, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, beyond Caddy, you've uh, created and contributed to quite a few other, like very, very popular uh, packages um, in, in Go, uh, just to name a few. There's, you know, JSON to Go, Papa Parse, Archiver, Timeliner, Curl to Go, uh, Checkup. Um, like people should really go to your <laughs> GitHub page and check out 
you know, all, all the amazing stuff that you've done. Uh, but I understand that you're, you're kind of working on a new project now that's uh, something to do with like layer four TCP multiplexing. Yeah, yeah, that's my latest side project that I'm having fun with. It's a, it's a Caddy app that, um, if you're familiar with Caddy's HTTP server, this will be a, it's a similar idea. Or it's basically, mm -hmm. yeah, it's a TCP, UDP, proxy, and server. Um, so instead of operating at the HTTP or the application layer, it operates at the transport layer. Um, so it accepts raw network connections or packets, and then um, it will, you can configure Caddy to do whatever you want with it. Uh, everything from, you can first match on the connection. So similar to the HTTP server, where you have this powerful idea of matchers, um, which are yeah. pieces of configuration that, that select or filter certain requests, right? You can match on HTTP headers or um, the, the path of the request or the client IP or the time of day or whatever else, like it's yeah. just a, a filter basically. You can do this at the layer four now. Um, you can match on hmm. the client IP of course, or does the connection look like an HTTP protocol? So it can read in a few of the bytes and like sniff it out and then um, does it look like a TLS handshake? Does it look like SSH? Does it look like some other database protocol or whatever? And then you can, so you can match on connection type and multiplex various different protocols and connections on, on a single socket. Um, so that's really cool. And then you can either, from there, you can proxy it with like load balancing and health checks, or you can uh, echo it back if you're like debugging or whatever, troubleshooting, you can tee it off, kind of like the Linux T command. Um, that's kind of useful sometimes. Yeah. You want to record what's coming in from a client, but also still pass it upstream. Um, mm -hmm. You can terminate TLS, or you can not terminate it, whatever you want to do. And then, of course, TLS termination, you get the benefits of certificate management for free, you know, the automatic TLS. Um, so anyway, it's a really cool, really flexible um, piece of software that I'm really excited about. Would it be safe to call it like uh, caddy, but for layer four instead of layer seven? I hate I hate to do the X for Y thing, but is that kind of like a yeah uh, yeah? It's basically the same thing, and I call it project concept with two ends, like a connection. Project. Oh, con oh, that's cool. That's cool. That's a cool name. <laughs> yeah, um, it's better than is, caddy. Is yet? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's Apache license. It's not it's not open to the public um, while I'm developing it. I'm. Um, right now, sponsors get exclusive access. So if you sponsor me, you can get early access um, uh, and you can test it out. And I'd love your feedback, whoever is listening to this that <laughs> would like to try it. Um, cool. Hopefully, you know, I have the sponsor goal if you go to my sponsor page. And once you reach that goal, this is, this is through GitHub sponsors, right? Uh huh. Yep. GitHub.com slash sponsors slash mholt, H O L T. Um, you'll see that I have a sponsor goal. And once you reach that goal, then I'll open it to the public. And, and we can get to that goal faster um, at higher tier sponsorships too. So like if you want to advocate for your company to sponsor, um, that would be like an ideal arrangement, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I would highly encourage anyone who is you know remotely interested in this sort of thing to go and, and sponsor that project. It, it seems uh, extremely useful, extremely cool. It's and a fun one. I think you know, 
Yeah. And, and also I think, you know, like open source contributors, maintainers, like they invest so much time and effort uh, into making these uh, libraries and tools that we all can use that, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, but they, they also have to pay the bills at the end of the day. So <laughs> we do. Yeah. Um, I, I recently, I recently put out a tweet um, comparing open source sponsorships to like athletic sponsorships, you know, how like athletes will be sponsored. Typically athletes are sponsored by like one company and or, or like I don't know NASCARs are sponsored by like a couple or few companies maybe um, but like open source sponsor you know developers are sponsored by a thousand well the really popular projects and caddy is actually not at the scale but like you, you look at projects like view or whatever and, and they have like thousands of sponsors and they're each doing like a dollar or five dollars a month <laughs> and I just thought it'd be so funny if like athletes were sponsored by like thousands of their fans at a dollar a month or something like yeah, I mean, yeah. kind of weird that's a weird thought the corporate sponsorship really is is the way to go i think um yeah so i just went on and sponsored you uh and i encourage everyone else to to do the same um oh, so I, I guess <laughs> yeah absolutely well, thank you so much <laughs> i feel like this is the least i could do oh this is fine um as, as kind of like a, a, a final thought, uh, you know, you've built like a, a fantastic reputation as one of the most active open source contributors in, in the world of kind of modern web utilities and the Go open source community. Um, you know, looking back on your journey, do you have any lessons or words of advice for, you know, people who aspire to uh, be like you, Matt? <laughs> Don't. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, I mean, I like... I just would not go into, I would not go into open source development thinking that you're going to make a living off of it. Um, I've mm. been very fortunate and have pushed really hard to make that happen. Um, and I'm not going to try and discourage, like, if you want to do that, go for it. Like, I think that's a great goal, but I think it's better if like companies who are already profitable and developers who work for companies who are you know, who already have a salary, um, mm -hmm. getting into open source at that point, I think that's good. I think it's healthy for tech companies to be involved in open source. But um, I would just uh, honestly, like, I wouldn't over glorify open source development. Um, yeah, it definitely is not perfect and has a lot of issues. But um, if you like working with communities, and if you like so like I'm still personally developing better like patience and, and kindness toward everyone. So like that's something I'm working on. But and if you're really into that, then community yeah. sense of things, then open source is really great. Um, but it doesn't need cool. to be a goal. You can still be a really successful developer um, doing a normal day to day development job um, that may not get any recognition, unfortunately, but um, just please do your job well, whatever it may be, because we're we who are using that your company's products are relying on that, you know. Um, yeah. So definitely. And uh, I I really do hope that uh, someone comes along and cracks the very you know tricky nut of how do we enable open source contributors and authors to to make a sustainable living off of their work? Because I think whoever does that will do a, a huge favor to the world. Yeah, I agree. I could give you a formula that I think will work if, I mean, 
yeah you have to tailor it to each circumstance but um <laughs> and this is not my own formula but this i've seen this work and uh, and that is find companies who will sponsor your projects well or sponsor you personally as as the maintainer um mm -hmm. where your project or your work benefits the company either their employees or their customers because either of those audiences are profitable for the company so if you write a mm -hmm. developer tool that the company's employees use then it's in the company's best interest to sponsor your development and um and, and keep that project alive and not even for like not even necessarily in direct exchange for your um like a uh, service but um although you could you know if if you wanted to make it a a consulting sale in that sense you could um mm -hmm. but just the fact that the project is going to keep going and has some um security behind it is a very valuable thing it's also a super good look for the company um yeah imagine this company you know that sponsors this little open source project that is actually really important to to them and their customers and they're able to say hey you know send out an email to all their customers or put on their website like hey we sponsor this project you know because you use it and you benefit from it and we want it to stay alive and healthy and well um you know we're pleased to to be behind our customers who use this um that's a really good look and so this this can work really well um i'm fortunate in that right now my uh my living is co covered by basically by sponsorships, uh, a, a single corporate sponsor, and then I have many individual sponsors. So I really rely on that um, to continue working on Caddy full time. That's awesome. As kind of like a you know a final question, you know, if people listening they want to try out Caddy or Project Concept or any of your other uh, you know work in the the Go community, uh, what would you recommend they do? Um, yeah, just go to the Caddy website and you can click download and just get a build for your system. Or you could do any of the packages we have, Docker included. Um, and then just go to the getting started guide and just go through the tutorial and then find the next tutorial, um, whether it's a Caddy file or API tutorial. Um, and just start playing with it and see how useful it can be for you. And then um, feel free to post on our forums, get involved. And, uh, you know, even if you don't need help with anything, go find someone who is asking. We have a lot of people asking questions about how to get Caddy to work with their setups. And mm -hmm. uh, again, most of the questions aren't really so much uh, like problems in Caddy. It's just, they just don't know how to get their setup to work. And so yeah. we, need a, we, we could really use more people helping on our forums. We have a few wonderful contributors to our forums who are very active and helpful um but it'd be nice if they weren't you know that burden wasn't only on just them my guest today has been matt holt matt thanks for being on the show yeah thanks so much beyond this has been fun the sourcegraph podcast is a production of sourcegraph the universal code search engine which gives you fast and expressive search over the world of code you care about Sourcegraph also provides code navigation abilities like jump to dev and references in code review and integrates seamlessly with your code host, whether you're working in open source or on a big, hairy enterprise code base. To learn more, visit sourcegraph.com. See you next time.